Good morning once again. Uh, it's great to be with you. It really is. What a wonderful time of worship this morning. Um, I just got to say, like, I'm so glad that I've seen some of you who this morning met some of you who are visiting, some for the first time. At, that is incredibly awesome, but also just to, to feel the Holy Spirit in the room with us. Amen? It's a lovely thing. <laughs> it really is. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We are continuing in a series, and you'll see from our screen here, that we've titled The Good Life, Human Flourishing According to Jesus. And of course, it's based on the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7. And uh, yeah, it's been very interesting so far. I think we're now in the fifth or sixth week. I'm losing track here. Been through the Beatitudes, been through the Salt and Light, uh, been through the uh, passage last week, which was incredibly important about the law and the prophets, and Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then he added a couple of other little trinkets in there that we'll look at again this morning. So we learned something last Sunday, I hope you remember this, uh, that uh, it was important. We learned that uh, it's the greatest problem, I believe, that every human being since the days of Adam and Eve to today has, had, does have, and will have. It's the one thing that we do not have. So it's a big problem because we need it. And that thing is righteousness, right? We don't have it. (laughs) We we, we look for it. We we try to present ourselves as righteous, which only comes off as being self-righteous and self-justifying half the time. And so it's amazing what we saw early on in this series. We saw through the Beatitudes at this point, we saw that Jesus is standing there on this mountaintop with his disciples at his feet, thousands of people, great crowds there as well that he's preaching to and speaking to. And we saw, we saw that in that crowd, there were two primary worldviews on display. There was, of course, the, the Jewish tradition uh, of the law and the prophets, right? And religion and rules and regulations. And then there was, of course, the Greco-Roman part of the crowd who, who based all of their worldview on how to find the good life and human flourishing on human reasoning and rationale related to morals and ethics. And so we saw that they were all there. It was on display. And yet for a few thousand years before Jesus shows up, they've been working on this, trying to achieve the good life based on good behavior and being a good person, and not quite getting there. And so my, my question is, and you guys know me who come regularly, I got lots of questions, right? Keep asking questions, and then we go to the Scripture, and thankfully we get our answers, right? We get them from the Word of God and from Jesus in this case. And the question I have there is, well, how did they even know? How did they, how do we even know there is such a thing as right behavior? Moral and ethical behavior, righteousness. How do we even know that exists? Well, again, if you've been reading your Bible for even a little while or attending church, you'll know that it's that residual, that tiny little flicker of the Imago Dei that is resonant in every single human being, which is the image of God. That's what we're we're told. We are created, we are made, male and female, in the very image of God. And of course, we, we failed in Adam and Eve. We ran away from God and became fully unrighteous in every possible way. And so it's good news that Jesus comes. And as I said, while, while they have been trying for thousands of years, they're sitting in front of him, 
to, to find the good life and how to flourish as a human being, how to be a good person, which they realized is necessary to be flourishing as a human being. They're sitting there having really, it's like going to repeated motivational seminars, right? Why do people keep going year in, year out? Because right? it didn't stick last year. So here they are sitting to, in front of Jesus, hoping that he will help them with this. And here's the thing. They're listening to him, and they're realizing that what he's saying is vastly different than anything they've ever heard before. And we saw last week a very important verse, which we're going to repeat, that he essentially said to them, your righteousness, the righteousness that you're looking for, has to exceed these religious dudes over here. That was shocking. (laughs) That was shocking. And so we know the gospel. We know that the good news is Jesus came to solve the problem and he solved it by giving his perfect life on the cross in your place, in my place, so that he could freely give his perfect righteousness to all of us. Amen? Good news? Let's read our text for today and then I'm going to pray one more time and we'll dive in. Going back to the last verse that we looked at, Last week, verse 20 of chapter 5, Jesus speaking says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, That everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. I think we need to pray. (laughs) Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for again another opportunity to come here to worship you, to lift up your name, Jesus, to proclaim you as God and Savior. And so we're we're just so thankful that we can come here and do that. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. You you said, you told us last week in in the text just previously that not a single jot or tittle of your word will pass away. Everything that we see in this world, every material thing will pass away, but your word, word for word, will not pass away. So Lord, as we look at this text today, I need your help. We need your help, Lord. This is, this is very challenging. Lord, we, we can tell right from the start here that you're getting to the heart of the issue. You're getting to our hearts. So Holy Spirit, I pray you'll do that work of tilling our hearts so that we may grow in righteousness in you, Jesus. 
I pray in your worthy name, amen. So, uh, there are two subjects that uh, permeate the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, well, they permeate the Gospels and the words of Jesus. But specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, there are two subjects that permeate. The first is the kingdom of God, right? He, he's, Jesus came to declare the kingdom of God is here, now in me. Not fully realized yet, but coming to be fully realized. And so it's a huge theme. The other is, of course, the subject that I've been mentioning in the introduction and we've been looking at, righteousness. So the first, the kingdom of God, is the primary theme really of the whole sermon. It, it is a gift that has been given to us. It, again, is not something that we can earn. It's completely a gift for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus for their salvation. We learned that from the very first beatitude, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, present tense, right now, the kingdom of God. And we learn that it is when we learn that, we acknowledge that, we realize our spiritual poverty, our absolute bankrupt nature, that we have zero to bring to God to commend us to him for his forgiveness. It's at that point. It's not when you pray a little prayer. No, it's at that point when you realize that, that he is God and you are not and I am not, that you are a Christian and, and, and you possess immediately the kingdom of God. It's ours. We're in it. And so that's the theme. That is, that is the theme that he's trying to build out here. And, and at the same time, what he wants to do is he wants to show us the character traits of what it looks like to be someone who possesses the kingdom today. Why? Because he wants us to have the good life. He wants us to flourish in this life, despite the fact that this life is going to present a lot of challenges. Despite that, he wants us to flourish. He wants us to be transformed into these kingdom people, and that is the life of the Christian. Being continually transformed into the likeness of Christ and growing in righteousness. It's awesome, right? <laughs> it's awesome. And so on that righteousness part, let's look again at the first verse that I read today, the last verse from last week. Jesus said, For I tell you, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is an important point, right? We spent much of our time last Sunday on this verse, but I thought we'd consider... Uh, a couple of few or a few additional ideas as we head into the example of righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees that Jesus will dive into today and teach us about. The first thought is that we should note that many of the Pharisees actually, I mean, they, they get thrown off under the bus a lot. I, I've done that as a preacher, right? But the reality is, is many of these uh, Pharisees were actually very righteous, they, they really were. They lived it out pretty well. They proclaimed the word of God and stood for it pretty well. Perfectly? Uh-uh. Just like your pastor. Like, they didn't. But the reality is, the real reality is, and the sad thing is, is that, well, in the culture of that day, for the most part, they were not much liked. Let's put it that way. Most of the plebs, as I like to call them, the, the regular, run-of-the-mill Jewish people who weren't so holy and righteous, or at least appeared to be so, didn't like them very much. 
And the first reason, sadly, was because many of them actually weren't walking the talk. Right? M- many of them put on a really good show. They wore the big hats, dressed properly, you know, and had the, the cloths and all the rest of it. And they had the big book, you know. The, well, they didn't have the King James, but something like it. And the, the big copy of the Torah, whatever. And, and they looked the part. But the reality is, people knew that behind closed doors or in other ways, they cut corners. And therefore, they were seen to be hypocritical. Religious people can be that way. Lift up a mirror. The second was very interesting, however. They, They were not liked so much because they were considered to be fanatics. Now, who likes a fanatic? Anybody? Anybody like a fanatic about anything? Religion especially? The average Jewish man or woman looked at them and thought, you guys, you guys take the law way too seriously. In fact, you take it literally. They were those kind of fanatics, right? Are any, any, any fanatics like that today? Sure there are. there are. There are Christians who are seen to be that way, a little fanatical about the word of God and taking it literally. Nobody likes people who are that fanatical, Right? Here's the interesting thing. Really, in this verse that Jesus just preached to them, what Jesus is actually saying, and I think it's an important point as we go on to the examples, is that Jesus is actually saying, guys, you've actually all got it wrong. They weren't fanatical enough. They they really weren't fanatical enough. They, They didn't go far enough. The law hadn't really gone from their heads to their hearts. So the Beatitudes, once again, if we remember them, these character traits of those who are members of the kingdom, saved by the grace of God and the work of Christ, we see that every trait, listen, is the result of a new transformed heart. God just doesn't want to write the law and give the law to us. He wants to write it on our hearts. And that's what he's doing in this and in this way. So that's what your life and my life as a Christian is actually all about. All about the continual sanctifying, softening, and transforming of our hearts. Let me repeat that word. Softening. Okay? <clears throat> I've been talking about t-shirts that I got a closet full of at home throughout this whole series. I got that t-shirt. Thankful that this Glenn, who was 26 and pretty fanatical has been softened and again and again. And Lord, please keep up the work. Subject we're going to look at today is a tough one. But that's what he's doing in us. Mark in his gospel uh, gives us some profound, actually, as I was doing some research on this and looking through the gospels, he, he has more verses, I believe, in his gospel about the, our hearts, related to our hearts, than I think the other Gospels do. I could be wrong, but I found in his Gospel a remarkable number of them. I just want to give you a couple. There's one where, and this is Jesus, he's, he's preaching and teaching, and look, you know what he's doing? He's standing in front of a person who needs to be healed, but guess what day it is? It's the Sabbath. And of course, the Pharisees and the scribes, the fanatical guys, are standing there looking at him going, okay, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to break the Sabbath, or at least their understanding of the Sabbath, which wasn't a heart understanding of the Sabbath, right? 
And then Mark records this in chapter 3, verse 5. And he, Jesus, looked around at them, look at this word, with anger. This is important (laughs) because it's part of our text for today, isn't it? Jesus got angry. His anger is very different than yours and mine. I, I, I know that in my past, and some of you have probably said it, you need to repent if you said it. Well, what I, what I was doing was righteous anger. Just be careful, okay? Self-justifying? Jesus was angry about this. But look at what he was angry. He was grieved at what? Their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. That's the heart of the Sabbath right there. It's called healing, rest for our souls. On many occasions, actually, in the Gospels, you'll see Jesus rebuking the religious leaders for their hardness of heart. And so that's the issue, actually, for you and I here today in in our day and age. It's, It's the same issue to a certain extent. There are two spectrums that we can go to, either to license or to legalism, right? We can go to one of those two spectrums, and rather than, it's not middle ground, by the way, it's called liberty, (laughs) is the other one, but we can go to license, right, where we can take the moral law of God too lightly. We can take license with it. Grace, 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 grace. Yes, grace. Yes, more grace. While others let the law make them hard-hearted. So there are many other references in Mark, but there's one more that I want to give to you today. And these are from the words, uh, these are the words of Jesus and from his lips, which speak again about the heart of man and to our text for today. In chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, Jesus said this, for from within. So it's not from without. It's not what comes from without of you that perverts you and perverts me. For from within, out of the heart of man, men and women, come look at this. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, there it is, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slender, pride, foolishness. Many of these sins, six at least, these are matters of the heart that Jesus deals with in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with murder today. So beginning in verse 21, Jesus focuses on transforming our hearts in the area of our human relationships. As we learned last week, Jesus, and I've already alluded to that, has an incredibly high view of Scripture. As I said, one commentator says, his view of Scripture gives me a nosebleed. It's such a high view of Scripture. I would also like to suggest to you this morning that Jesus has an incredibly high view of human relationships. Our relationship with him and with God, first of all, but with one another, right? I think it's his highest priority. You'll remember that when Jesus was asked by a scribe, which of the Ten Commandments, the moral law, right, was most important, you remember what he said, right? I mean, what what a question. He's put on, in front of all these people, he's put on the spot. Okay, rabbi, smart guy, what's the answer? 
Just give me one commandment. If I can fulfill this one commandment, I'm going to be good with God, right? Like synthesize it for me. Make it simple. I'm a simple guy. Again, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus said what they should have known from the Old Testament, jot and tittle, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Start there. And with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Are these heart issues? <laughs> Both of them are, right? So what, in fact, Jesus did when, when, he, when he answered that question, I'm not sure, I don't know if they got it in that day because they don't say, but we've been over this before. What, what he did in those two statements, those two, he, he said they're one, but they're two really, love God, love your neighbor, love God, love others. That's a synthesis of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? The, the first four commandments are about loving God, and the next six are about loving one another. They're about human relationships. They're about how we love or don't love each other. And of course, the fifth commandment is, the first of those is, honor your mother and your father. Well, there's a relationship for you, right? It starts there. And of course, the very next one is, thou shall not murder. And so we arrive at verse 21 where Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So at this point, um, to say that Jesus (laughs) has most of their attentions, I think, would be very much an understatement. This is now, he's moving into the meat of what he's trying to teach, expounding on what he just said about exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees. And they're like, we're all ears, Jesus. We're all ears, so help us here. And so he dives into this. And so they've known in their culture in that day that these these words would not have been shocking to them at all in one sense. Um, First, when they hear these words, they understood them. They they understood that the typical rabbi, which is what Jesus is talking about here, is those who are of old, right? The the rabbis, the teachers, this would have been what they would have said. They would have quoted the commandment, thou shalt not murder, and then they would have added a commentary, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's an, an added tradition, which was good. And Jesus is essentially affirming that here. He's not calling what they did with their exposition of thou shalt not murder, wrong. He's actually affirming it. It would have been a common, as I said, exposition of that. But then they hear Jesus say this. So far, it's good. Verse 22, Jesus says, but, you know, things are changing. I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Definitely got my attention. How about you? There's so much going on here. We'll unpack it a little bit just so that we can get a, just a little bit of a breath of what the, how that would have landed on them. But right away, those first words, but I say to you, listen, in that day, some of you probably heard this before, but it's important, no Jewish rabbi would ever, would never have the gall to say such a thing. They wouldn't do that. 
They, they would never say it, but I say to you. It's a little bit like me going up here and going, so listen, here's the gospel, but let, let me give you some of Glenn's good advice. You should walk out. So they're hearing this and they're, they're wondering, what is going on? What is, he, what is he saying? How can he possibly be, be doing that? The, the, the traditional rabbi would never say that. He would, be, he would be saying like Jesus did last, well, we heard last week from when he was tempted by the devil, they would be saying like, it is written, right? That they would quote the Bible or they would say, uh, the Lord God said, or Moses or Father Abraham said, never would they say, but I say to you. Rabbis would not do that. That would be the last thing they would do. So they would have likely heard this and understood Jesus to be saying that what they had heard from those of old was true, but that he, this new rabbi who was producing a lot of miracles and saying pretty amazing things, was going to go a little bit deeper on it. So maybe to begin with anyway, they're going to cut him some slack because that was, that was outrageous what he said there. And so he continues, and I think after they hear all of it, some of them probably would have said, hold on a second here. I'm starting to get the impression that he's putting himself on par with Moses, Father Abraham, and the Lord God. Oh, yes, he was. (laughs) He's divine. And some of them would have gotten that impression and not liked it at all. But others, because we know how the Sermon on the Mount ends, were believing a little bit. He spoke with authority like their scribes and their Pharisees never did, right? So some are paying attention and maybe getting the message that maybe he is divine. Maybe he is the Son of God, as he has been claiming to be. So now looking again at this verse, Jesus is going far beyond, of course, the conventional understanding of that day or today for that matter about what murder is and whether or not someone is guilty of murder. I think most faithful Jews in that day and most of you in this room, I hope, (laughs) hello, are there any police in the room? Not that they would have done this, don't get me wrong, but they could arrest you, have ever committed murder. Don't raise your hand if you have, okay. So some of us might be going, well, I can check that box. I'm good. (laughs) There's a commandment I don't need to worry about, right? Wrong. Jesus in his great love for us, and listen, our relationships with one another dials it up, not, not just a notch. He dials it way up. Because look, essentially he is saying this. Agree with me if 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 you can. I would suggest he's saying that anger. Anger, real anger, is equal to murder. And listen, I, I used to use this phrase, in God's economy, in God's mind. Hold on, as we look at anger this morning, and it's going to get a little buckle up. It's murder. It's horrific what it does to our relationships, and also what it does to us. So he's saying that there is a kind of anger That is murderous. And look, he goes on and gives us some examples. He says, first, anger with a brother or sister will receive the same penalty as murder. There's the equation, okay? I think it's pretty simple to see that. Secondly, he says that insults, insults, are anger expressed and are liable as well. And finally, thirdly, calling someone a fool will also result in judgment. 
And as one commentator uh, made the point, and I would agree with it completely, let, don't try to split hairs here. This is not a progression or one is worse than the other. Listen, all of them, <laughs> all of them are murder, examples of murder, and result in judgment before God if unconfessed and unrepentant. So let's have a look at this. Some of your translations, of course, the good old King James Version probably uh, is one of them, might use the word raka. In, 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 it's an Aramaic word for the word insult that we see here in the ESV uh, translated as insult. Raka, this Aramaic word, um, might be translated some today that's loosely because it's kind of hard to completely translate the Aramaic, let alone the Greek per se, but it might be something along the lines of an idiot or for our British friends here today, a upper-class twit. Okay. Monty Pythons, thank you very much. A jerk. An empty-headed person. A blockhead. Listen, listen. We're going to start right there. Ever been cut off in traffic and go, you jerk? At the grocery store, someone cuts in. <laughs> ever, ever thought of someone, let's just pick what... A politician as an idiot? Self-justify? Jesus is being very serious here. Very serious. So it was not a joke. And in those days, listen, when, when raka was thrown on the table about a person, it was considered slanderous. It was considered offensive. It was considered a serious and egregious attack on the person. It was, it was meant to... To, to show your contempt for them. Anger. <laughs> Fool. Well, there's a good word. In the Greek, it's the word moros, M-O-R-O-S. Guess which word we get in the English from that? Ever, ever, anybody? I got that T-shirt. I went to an all-boys Catholic Jesuit high school, and trust me, there were a lot of morons in my class. I was a moron. It's just thrown out there, right? So, but here's the thing. In our modern understanding of that word, and again, we can just loosely say that, you know, we, we, we think of that word, we think in, in this day it means that someone is it's just stupid or not very intelligent, right? Moronic is, is the understanding. But again, in the day, that's not exactly the way it was perceived or the, the way it was delivered. What, what it actually meant would be more like calling someone an atheist, I mean, David in Psalm, it won't be on screen, 14 verse 1 says, the fool, listen, the fool, same word in the Hebrew, says in his heart, in his heart, what? There is no God. So in that day, when you called someone a fool, you, you were calling them irreligious. You were calling them someone who's not even smart enough to be able to look around and say, come on, there's a creator God. So anger, let's just park on that for a second. Let's think on this for a few minutes. Jesus has elevated anger to the same level as murder. And so my question for all of us here this morning is this. Do you, do we, do I have a problem with anger? Anyone play golf? Okay, but seriously, 
I spent a fair bit of time ruminating on this this week. Rudy helped me. He goes, oh, look what you're preaching on. <laughs> I did. I spent a lot of time thinking about this week. Considering the levels of an impact of anger that I see around me in this world. Then I brought it home and looked at what it looks like in my own life. And yes, listen, my own heart. Uh, what I discovered is this, Just, come on, it's insidious. Um, and, and like I said last week, it's our self-righteousness can lead to self-justifying, right? I've alluded to that already. And, and we, we, so we look at the, these little tiny things, like, well, I insulted somebody. What's the big deal with that? They deserved it. You know, um, I get insulted all the time. Like, Get off. Just get on with your life. It's okay. You know, as, as I started to get into it, I, I realized that, man, there's just so many, so many ways in which it's part of my life. Then, <laughs> prayerfully examining it, I was just so thankful. As my wife and I have been going through the last two or three years of various things, I, and, and you'll hear I am at a young-looking 67 years of age, it's very, okay, I just put that out there. Um, I'm just really thankful that God's not finished with me. So listen, anger will in fact, look at, here's what it'll do. It'll eat you up. It'll eat us up. It'll consume us if we don't allow the grace and the love of our God to transform our hearts. It works out this way. When we are angry, we murder another person's name. How do we do that? I feel it's one of the worst sins in the Bible that we all just skip right over. It's called gossip. We elevate ourselves by murdering their name. We murder their reputation. This is not just a brother or sister or a friend. That's public figures. Just be honest here, okay? Not pointing any fingers. I got that t-shirt too. We murder our relationships with them and with others who know and love them. In the end, we end up murdering their hearts too. Let me ask you this. If and when someone has been angry with you and you know it, has it grieved you? even when there's nothing you can really do about it, well, it hurts, doesn't it? When somebody's angry at you, so angry at you that they, they murder your reputation, they gossip about you, they say things about you, they, they say it to your face, they hurt you. It's a hard issue. It hurts. It does. So anger can start very small in our lives, and then it progresses much like Jesus here says. It, 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 it escalates to, to grumbling under our breath, outright insults and slanders, eventually to a broken relationship. We need to check it whenever we see it. We need to absolutely crush it. A few months ago, we were doing a series. I can't remember what it was about, but I was trying to make an illustration about how, you know, we, whenever we're angry about something not working out in our lives the way it should uh, we, end up, we ended up blaming the wrong person who, in fact, we were blaming as God, right? 
And I gave you the little illustration about my two little perfect eggs that I break every day from our chickens in the backyard. They make six a day, so I got to eat at least two, right? Trying to keep up here, right? And I crack my eggs and I like them sunny side up. And every once in a while, one of them, I break the yolk. And I caught myself one day going, I'm not going to say it. Darn it. No, not quite. I got angry about breaking a yoke. It seems so ridiculous and silly, right? But I'll tell you what. If we get angry about little things like that, there's other issues and problems of anger in our lives as well. Are, are there not? So even there, it's like, it's, I'm, I'm grateful now when I break an egg and I go, thank you, God. It's like, <laughs> still bugs me but I'm thankful. So can I ask one more question before we look at Jesus' solution here to our problem of anger? Have you noticed at all, have you noticed at all that your fuse, my fuse, has just gotten a little shorter over the last three years? Anybody got that T-shirt? Raise your hand. Come on. (laughs) Thank you. Some honest people in the crowd. So here's the beauty of Jesus is on full display here. The beauty of Jesus is he's not just a, a teacher who comes and says, okay, here's what you got to do now. Figure it out. No, he comes and tells us what the problem is and he comes and says, I'm the solution to your problem and by the way, I'm going to help you. Here's what it looks like. It's beautiful. In verses 23 and 24, he says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So, so first... We've got to hear this. Jesus speaks to our self-righteous hearts. He's speaking to the person who knows full well that they have bitterness and anger in their hearts towards a brother or sister, and it's not just in the church, it's any human being. And they know they have bitterness and anger in their hearts, and yet they're coming to church and going, praise Jesus, look at me. Yeah. Oh, communion's next? Let's, that's great, let's do that. That's what Jesus is getting at here. That's what he's getting at, actually. Before you go and do that, before you come and worship me, you fix that. If you're harboring bitterness and anger towards a brother or sister, deal with it. Deal with it. See, what they understood in that day when they heard this altar business, when they heard that, when they heard Jesus say those words, they understood what it meant. It was like, you know, you're, you're a Jewish man or woman and it's, it's time to do sacrifices. So you, you bring an animal to the priest, to the temple, you take it to them to sacrifice and the procedure was pretty simple. You would take that lamb or that animal, whatever it was, whatever you could afford, but an a, a innocent animal and you'd place your hand on the animal while you passed it to the priest and the point of that action was to say I'm placing my hand on that what I'm doing is I'm putting my my sins on that animal and you're going to sacrifice it to God for me to atone for my sins that's what they understood when they heard this from Christ well at the end of the day bottom line is what were they actually hoping for in return Forgiveness. Forgiveness of their sins. So Jesus is saying to them exactly what he will say later in the Sermon on the Mount when he teaches his disciples how to pray. He said, pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread and what? 
Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Oh, prayed that prayer today? So, let's cut to the chase. Are you angry with someone? Has your relationship with them been broken due to anger on your part? Jesus wants you to show love for them by going to them, telling them you're sorry. They may not even know. Telling them you are sorry and being reconciled to them. So, so some of you might be thinking, well, well, what if someone is angry with me? But, but really, in my heart of hearts, I don't, I don't really feel like I, I did anything wrong. And you're not, you're honestly being honest about this. You're not like trying to self-justify here. Like you're like, no, they're really angry with me. And, and you know, it, it's, it's hurting me and it's bad. Are, are you saying, Jesus, I, I, I need to go to them? Both end. Yes, but you can still come and worship. But still, as we'll see in the point after, you should still seek Reconciliation and forgiveness for anything you may have done. Do it to the best of your ability. Sometimes, there's nothing you can do. I want to be honest about that with you too, so nobody feels guilty here today, because we're going to have communion here this morning. I'll give you an example of something that happened in my life many years ago. A high school buddy, uh, my best friend, we started a business in Toronto together, first business that I ever had, my first failure. Um, but it was fun. For a couple of years, we did a DJ service in local clubs and stuff, which was great. It was awesome, right? And uh, we were best buddies. Janice and I moved out here with our, our eldest son, and we kept in touch one. Anyway, a long story short, I, I heard that my buddy was getting involved with some things that concerned me from another friend about that he was doing something. And so my sister lived in Toronto, and she knew him quite well and would see him quite often on weekends. And so I told her that, like, I'm really worried about him because, like, wow, this is not good. This is really bad. And so, uh, you know, my good old sister, she goes to him on the Friday night at this club and says, oh, Glenn's really worried about you because of this. Uh, He got angry. I, I was genuinely concerned about the health and safety of my friend. But he got angry with me. I tried to call him. He wouldn't take my calls. He refused to talk to me for 10 years. My best friend. He would come to visit other friends in Vancouver, and he'd go for a coffee with Janice, but not me. 10 years, guys. And then I get a call. And we get together. Our friendship is restored. We're better friends today. Well, he's moved here now. I sure hope he doesn't watch this. I do, actually, because it's just true. So the question is, after 10 years, what happened? What happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. He forgave me. Sometimes that's what it takes. But that's what Jesus wants for our relationships. I prayed through those 10 years. I kept loving my friend from a distance. 
Jesus concludes with these words. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So the point here is very, very simple. Don't need to spend a lot of time on these two verses. You see the word that's highlighted up there? The first word? Quickly. Don't let it fester. If you've done something through your anger that has hurt someone else, a brother or a sister, get it dealt with right away. If they're angry with you, find out why. Do your best to restore the relationship. And listen, friends, take these last words in the verse very seriously and to mean this. If you will not deal with it, if I don't deal with it, we don't deal with it right away, it will not go away. It will continue to fester in our own hearts. A root of bitterness will grow in us. Anger will be a big part of our lives. So Jesus wants this for you and for me. He wants us to be healed. You know, something about the, the scripture that I find very interesting when you look at things that are comparisons or opposites, you know, when, I, when you look at uh, Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians about giving, uh, you know, giving to the church, giving, right? It, it's, it's under the, the, the subject of generosity, right? Be, be generous, right? We want to be generous with our, with our tithes and our offerings or our giving in the church. Yes, of course you do, not just in the church, but with other people who need or are in need, so you want to be generous. And so the, the question is, is when you look at the scripture, what in God's mind from his word, is the opposite of generosity. Well, he actually tells us, it won't be on screen, but I'll read you the words, in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, it's it's kind of a conversation that God is having with the people of Israel through the prophet Malachi, and he says, will you rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. So, So in God's economy, in God's mind, the opposite of generosity is robbery. And so this morning, my question is, what is the opposite of murder? I hope it's been obvious. The opposite of murder is generous love. Generous, grace-filled love. Even when people don't, in our minds, deserve it. Why? Have you received it? Have you, honestly, have you received that generous love even when you didn't deserve it? Have you been forgiven of past, present, and future sins through generosity of heart from your Heavenly Father and your Savior, Jesus Christ? Yes, you have. Yes, I have. That's why. That's why we must be generous with our love. But that's also why we must allow the Holy Spirit of God today and every day forward to begin the work of softening our hearts and taking anger completely out of our lives. Pray with me, would you?